Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is a great pleasure. Not that Jack Lew, working for Joe Moakley years ago in Massachusetts, did it awfully young, but he did it across multiple platforms of public service. You know Jack Lew is a former United States Secretary of Treasury, but far more was his tour of duty at state beforehand. We're honored that the Secretary could join us uh, this morning. Jack Lew, I want to go to Leon uh, Panetta's incendiary comments equating Afghanistan to Bay of Pigs uh, uh, of 1961. From Kabul to Havana and south of Havana on the shore in April of 1961, are there similarities for this nation? Look, I think we're going through an incredibly uh, tragic time right now uh, with uh, the fall of Afghanistan. And I think the moment calls for looking forward, not back. Um, The evacuation of people who want to leave Afghanistan is the job right now. I think the fact that that operation is moving ahead shows that there was, in fact, planning to deal with a great deal of uh, uncertainty. There will be time after this to look back and to ask the question. Mm -hmm. uh, There have been different decisions. I think for right now, the, the, the job number one is to keep moving forward and to get as many people, Americans and people who cooperated with uh, and helped our effort there who want to leave the country out of the country. All would agree you've been a class act about avoiding the Republican-Democrat sniping, the snark moments that we see day after day after day. But assist us with the institutional weakness, perhaps, that was there with the Trump administration. Did any of this occur because state was institutionally weaker or our intelligence communities were institutionally weaker? I think the four years of the Trump administration weakened many institutions um, in terms of uh, the ability of experts to uh, voice their views and express them and have them considered uh, in terms of the people left behind uh, and the need to rebuild. So I think the damage is broad. Um, I've seen it in all the agencies that I have uh, been at uh, in the past. I think that uh, going forward, the job of rebuilding is well underway, um, but it takes time. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure the extent to which the current circumstance can be tied to anything specific in that regard. But I do think that there was a legacy of serious damage in many of the agencies. Jack, as a former U.S. Treasury Secretary, what should the U.S. do with respect to the financial assets of the Taliban, of Afghanistan, at a time when there is this sort of peace offering, but history has a very different story to tell? I think the burden of proof is on the Taliban uh, going forward. Uh, We have uh, too much experience uh, from the past uh, to take uh, at their word that anything is going to be different. I certainly hope that there will be a difference, but I think the the question of whether or not to treat the government um, as a legitimate uh, government, as a partner to open financial flows and the like has to come after there's more evidence of what that government is going to do. 
they've clearly learned that they need to talk differently than they did in the 1990s. We now have to learn whether they're going to act differently. So how concerned are you that as we have this controversy surrounding the Biden administration, that we're hitting a potential debt ceiling debate that could rival 2011, and we have an infrastructure plan that may get through at least the $550 billion one, but that really uh, is called into question when you look at the $3.5 trillion Reconciliation Act. How close are we to another debt ceiling debacle akin to what we saw a decade ago? Well, I'm not sure I would uh, conflate the issues of what's going on in Afghanistan with the question of the debt limit. I think uh, before the events of the last week, uh, there was considerable uncertainty as to how the debt limit would be uh, resolved. That remains the case. I think it's extremely dangerous for so many uh, senators, Republican senators, to sign on to a letter saying they will not support a debt limit increase. Procedurally, it's very challenging unless you get some bipartisan support. Uh, their pathways are there, but there are fewer. And the reality is that limit is the final, not the first decision. It's to pay old bills, not new bills. And you know, when we saw in 2017 an enormous increase in the debt through the tax cut, when we saw through the spending through the Trump years, uh, enormous increases in the deficit, and the bipartisan move to respond appropriately to COVID. Uh, I didn't hear people saying we're going to come back later and say we're not going to raise the debt limit. It's wrong. It's a self-inflicted wound if we end up with a crisis that can be completely avoided. I hope that the pathway towards resolving it is relatively clear and quick. But if I had to guess, there's going to be some choppiness between now and when it's done. And we know from experience that that causes a great deal of anxiety. This is not a moment when there's any more Jack Lou, I don't know if you wanted to the philosophy department at Harvard, but there is the concentration. And so much of that is studying the different philosophers. And I think of John Kelvin and America's deep-seated aversion to debt. And yet here we are with a debt and a deficit that Heilbronn and others never, ever would have perceived uh, that it would be in. Speak to conservatives now in their concern about the fact we have too much debt. So, you know, Tom, I've actually stayed consistent through a period when so many people have, uh, have deviated from their traditional views on uh, deficits and debt. I didn't hear a lot of concerns from conservatives about deficits and debt when we were cutting taxes uh, in a way that was irresponsible at a time when the economy was very healthy. Um, I think it was appropriate for both sides to say we're not going to worry about the deficit or the debt at the height of the COVID crisis. You look at what's going on right now. Congress is working with the administration to pay for the biggest investment in you know, my professional uh, uh, career in terms of domestic priorities, critical investments, important investments. I think the debate in Congress will come down to how much willingness is there to pay for uh, these investments, and that will dictate the size of the package. I think the hopeful uh, sign is that there is considerable consensus on a very large pool of offsets to pay for a significant investment. It's fundamentally different than saying devil may care, let the next generation pay for it. In terms of the cost of servicing the debt, with the near zero interest rates that we're seeing, for the next five, 10 years, the sustainment of payment of debt service is not the issue. I actually think the challenge is coming out of this, getting back to a more traditional view. 
that over time, when the economy is doing well, you need to pay for what you do and work at reducing the deficit. And when the economy is in trouble, you use your fiscal cannon to deal with that challenge. We're now at an ambiguous moment. Coming out of the COVID crisis, everything is uncertain. You were talking earlier in the program about the dark room. We don't know where the virus is going. We don't know uh, if full employment will be sustained. You know, I think we're doing the right things, making sure our economy comes back strong and sustainably out of the worst crisis uh, that I've ever seen. Jack Lou, we appreciate your time, sir. It's good to hear from you. Jack Lou there, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary. Commonwealth fund discussions are usually pretty dry, pretty bureaucratic. You can't do that with a Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund CEO. John Farrell, you're going to have a discussion with a guy truly outstanding, an absolute return in the hedge fund business, and quite the controversy as he took over at Norway's large pile of money. Tom, this one is a monster. It's $1.4 trillion, and I'm pleased to say that Nikolai Tanger joins us now, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund CEO. Nikolai, great to have you with us. You made some headlines over the past week with this quote. I'm going to read it for our audience. I think probably inflation is the biggest threat to capital markets that we are seeing now. It will probably hit the portfolio in a way that we have not seen before. For. Nikolai, what did you mean by that? I mean that we are at a situation now where uh, the bond yields are uh, extremely low and uh, the stock market is extremely high. And so therefore, any main change in uh, inflation will, will hit both part of the portfolio, you know. And in the past, this is one of them and not the other. Uh, but this time, it can move in, both can move in the same direction. So do you have to do things differently now with that in mind? Well, we are a very long-term investor, you know, and we are so big, it's kind of difficult to uh, to move around. And and we are, in a way, also uh, too, too big for, uh, you know, counterparties. So uh, given that we have a, a time horizon for our investments of 3,200 years, we, uh, we will probably have to sit through it. You understand more than most. It's not what you own. It's what you choose not to own. When you're this big, Nikolai, what are you choosing not to own right now and why? Well, um, we are quite uh, index near in the way we uh, run our portfolio, but we also have uh, various um, uh, things that we don't own for ESG reasons. We started to sell down uh, various things uh, already back in 2012, and that's been, a, that's been a good strategy for the fund. So that's something we will increase going forward. What does that mean for the regional bias going forward as well, Nikolai? I'm thinking about China, EM. Do you have to reduce that because of ESG concerns? No, not necessarily. We have roughly five percent of the fund invested in China. It's uh, you know, it's one of the biggest markets in the world. It's done us, it's done really well for us, and so we continue to be invested there. Some people call it uninvestable. I've heard that from Marshall Weiss over the last couple of weeks. I've heard it from others too. Do you think it still is investable, and why? Well, I think it's investable. You have uh, a lot of great companies there. You got some good technology companies there. Uh, so we have, uh, we have large positions there and, um, and we really believe in a lot of those business models. The regulatory shift, though, can happen overnight. Nikolai, to believe in the business model, you have to have some predictable regulation there as well. Some kind of certainty looking forward several years through your time horizon a whole lot longer. Do you have that with China? Well, I think we have uncertainty all over the place. You know, we have uncertainty in all markets. So uh, uh, it's the nature of it is a bit different uh, in China, but... Uh, that's, uh, that's life as an investor. Do you think things are changing more rapidly over the last couple of weeks there, the last couple of months? 
yeah, things are things are changing uh, quite quickly. We got people on the ground. We got uh, good PMs who are looking at these things and uh, and they make the necessary adjustments in the portfolio. Well, let's talk about your PMs. You've brought on sports psychologists. I know this is an, an area of interest for you to prepare your PMs for things maybe they've not been prepared for. Can you walk me through how you're managing the people within the fund and the changes you're trying to make? Yeah, so um, we do this despite me being pretty pathetic in sports, right? So I have absolutely nothing to bring to the party as a as an athlete. But uh, I have seen how sports psychologists can help us uh, do different things um, because what we do is uh, is very uh, is very tricky. It's uh, you know high achievers and so on. And I would say the main parts is uh, it's resilience and it's bounce back ability. How do you get back when you had losses? How do you manage to take the same type of risk even when you've been through a Tough, uh, you know, patch. That's the that's the key, I think. Nicola, can you give me an example, a real life example, in your times managing money where that has helped, where you've seen that change develop with a PM? Well, it's helped me, for instance, uh, during my during uh, the last uh, eight to ten years, where I, where I have actively used a sports psychologist, has made me come through uh, in a mentally better state. Uh, you know, some of the really volatile periods. I think it's a complete no-brainer. You know. Going forward from here, you're also listening to Ernie's calls, I know. You've done interrogation training over in Norway as well. Nikolai, just give me a flavour of that, how helpful that is to understand the kind of questions you need to be asking on an earnings call, what you need to be listening for, the tone of the delivery from the C-suite and the kind of red flags you'd be looking for on calls like that as well. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, spend kind of... 10 years learning it. It's not something you could just kind of teach in uh, in six seconds, but everything from just how you ask questions uh, that you don't uh, link together different types of questions that you look at what managements are not answering as much as what they actually are answering, uh, looking for very small words called qualifiers and so on. Just a whole range of techniques that we need to apply here. Nikolai Tangen, very, very experienced managing money and it's good to catch up, sir. Let's, let's, let's segue here, John, into what Lindsay Piegs of Stiefel is worried about, and that is the strength, the power of the American consumer. We see that in Target moments ago with some very good numbers, a share uh, buyback announced, and, uh, you know, the stocks are churning here on what I'm going to call really, really pretty good numbers. It'll be interesting to see Target's digital presence after what we saw from Walmart and a little bit of digital worry yesterday at Walmart. But we'll give you those headlines as they come in and go to Dr. Piggs. Lindsay, I look at where we are on the consumer. Is, it a, is there a clarity to what the consumer is doing right now or is it a mystery into the end of the year? Well, I think the consumer is on relatively solid footing. We do see that there's a, a tremendous amount of wealth that has been accumulated over the past 6 to 12 months. But we also know that a tremendous amount of stimulus, which has been provided on a monthly basis yeah. to millions of Americans, is beginning to fade. And, and I think we see that pullback of stimulus reflected in yesterday's retail sales numbers coming in at a big disappointment. So going forward, how much are you looking at this idea that we're seeing sentiment decline, like the University of Michigan's uh, sentiment survey showed, retail sales disappoint. How much can we tell that consumers truly are feeling the crimp of higher prices and spending less as a result? 
Well, I think they are feeling the creep of higher prices. As we know, the, the CPI is up near 6%. This is an incredibly <clears throat> elevated level of, of cost for consumers. And we see that not only translating into how consumers are shifting the goods and services in their basket, but the overall nominal decline in how they're willing to spend. Now you layer on this growing fear of the rise of Delta variants, so case numbers, hospitalizations, death rates, uh, constantly stealing the news headlines, creating a level of fear that while we may not go back to the onerous restrictions that we saw during 2020, uh, we are starting to see mask mandates come back in. And even the, the fear itself uh, could serve to curtail consumer behavior in terms of going out into the market, feeling comfortable interacting in crowds or around other people. And that could slow the recovery in the labor market, slow overall demand in the economy, and of course, by extension, then reduce the outlook for overall GDP. Lindsay, there's an argument that there's a psychological difference between spending higher uh, spending money on higher prices with stimulus checks versus money that you earned and as the stimulus checks wear off and people actually see that they're spending the money that they get in their paycheck on that much higher food bill that they're going to spend less and cut back more do you see evidence to support this I don't know if we see evidence of this quite yet, but we do hear peripheral uh, and, and anecdotal reports that consumers are increasingly sensitive of spending that hard-earned money as opposed to a check that is coming in the mail. Now, of course, we're sort of splitting hairs when we talk about the decision to spend wealth or spend funds on an elevated price item. But uh, for the average American, when they see that check, dwindle ever so uh, more quickly in terms of filling up the family car, buying groceries, when it is your hard-earned money as opposed to uh, tax dollars, <clears throat> it takes a, a bigger hit to, uh, to that, that, that <clears throat> mental outlook that you have for not only your financial condition, but for the yeah. pathway for the economy. Lindsay, in the clear and present, there's many people looking at 2021 GDP over 6% off of a boom economy. You've got a more cautious view of GDP under 6% as well. I've got Target giving me high single digit look forward. Can we get that? Can we get not a soggy economy like 3%, but a less than boom economy as you call for and still have corporate America do well and have the consumer do well? Absolutely. I, I think the back half of the year is going to be noticeably reduced from what we saw in terms of six and a half percent across the first six months. Now, that's not to say that the economy is losing significant momentum or that the recovery itself is losing footing, but we're looking at the composition of growth. And when you talk about that government component, trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars no longer contributing to growth in the back half of the year, we would expect that headline number to subside. And we are looking for a number closer to 3 to 4% GDP in the latter six months of the year. Now, going forward, there's a bigger concern that as we start to see the economy recalibrate and consumers slow down to a more sustainable pathway based on income growth, it's likely we return back to the growth levels that we saw at the end of 2019, yeah. early 2020. So prior to the pandemic, which as you remember, is closer to about 2%. Let me make a right angle turn then. If we get a Piegza economy and we get a, a consumer that's more cautious, more measured, how do they afford real estate? 
It's a good question, and it's something that I think policymakers are very concerned about. In fact, we've heard from several Fed presidents argue that asset purchases are no longer helping in terms of job creation, but they're instead mostly helping drive up prices of interest rate sensitive goods such as homes and cars. And uh, of course, to that point, we've seen home prices specifically have risen dramatically over the past year. The S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index up over 16% in the past 12 months. And this is marking the biggest gain in available data going back to 1988. So there is a very big concern that a lot of these accommodative policies, both on the monetary and the fiscal front, <clears throat> while benevolent in intention, are actually creating more barriers, more burdens to sustainable longer-term growth uh, for the consumer, for the economy, as we look out to 2021 and beyond. Lindsay, thank you. We have to leave it there. We appreciate your time this morning. Lindsay Piexa there, Stiefel, Chief Economist. A lot of people get lathered up over Jackson Hole. I've been there many, many times. It's truly an academic conference. There's boring papers that Michael McKee reads cover to cover. I'll take one or two of the papers typically and read them cover uh, to cover. But too often they really work at the Kansas City Fed to make it a constructive snooze fest. James Bianco knows this, Bianco Research, and he joins us now for really my first conversation on what the central bank will do. What does Chairman Powell, Jim Bianco, not want to do in Wyoming? He doesn't want to cause waves. He doesn't want to cause problems, similar to what he did in December of 2018 uh, when he talked about uh, the taper was on automatic pilot and it was going to be like watching paint dry, and it greatly upset the market, leading to the Powell pivot two weeks later. What he wants to do is lay out uh, a plan to begin a taper sometime next year and he's going to put a lot of caveats in it. And those caveats are going to be provided that the economic growth continues and provided that there is no surprises to the economy. And that's going to be a shout out to if Delta continues to rise and restrictions, I don't want to say lockdowns, but restrictions on the economy continue, that could derail the plan for tapering. Jim, a lot of people are looking for taper talk. However, we've already gotten some sense that one of the main topics will be income inequality actually contributing to low rates going forward and what Fed policy can do about that. As a market watcher, how much are you looking at that as possibly uh, giving more of a sense of what's to come than people are, are perhaps expecting? Well, income inequality is a big problem, and the Federal Reserve's big picture policy can contribute to that. But the immediate policy, when I mean immediate here, year to year, it's it's very hard to say that they're going to adjust policy either way, because if they were going to talk about income inequality, I really think that what they should be doing is raising rates, they sh or they should be tapering faster, because I think it's this low rate creating this speculative atmosphere in financial markets that is contributing to income inequality. So, yeah, I think they're going to talk about it. I hope they acknowledge their role in it, although sometimes I have my doubts. And uh, I'll see what they want to do, but more likely it's going to be on the regulatory side, if anything. Jim, you're not alone in saying this. A lot of people saying that Fed policy has actually contributed to widening income inequality. And it goes to a broader point. Have we reached the threshold at which Fed policy is viewed as perhaps harming more than helping on the margins, not only with respect to inflating asset prices, but also at a time when consumer prices are increasing at, at a faster pace than many people had expected? 
Yeah, the, if you look at financial markets, let's take the stock market. The, the dirty little secret is it's not cheap. You know, there are booming earnings, but you're paying big for those earnings. The valuations in the market are near the 2000 peak valuations, but the justification is twofold. One, earnings are very strong, and two, Jay Powell's got your back. And if that creates an environment where there is a change in policy, like inflation is perceived to be persistent instead of transitory, that could lead to a sharp pullback in markets. So they're setting up markets that they need to continue to get constant good news to go up. Now they have for nearly a year now, they've been getting constant good news to go up. But if that day ever comes that it doesn't, they could be setting it up for a bigger fall than you would otherwise see. Jim, can you help us understand why yields are where they are? Even Fed Chair Jay Powell has said he doesn't quite understand why they are as low as they are. You say perhaps it makes sense if you take a look at growth outlook, not necessarily inflation. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I think if you if you look at I've been looking at the reopening stocks an index of them, and they have been dramatically underperforming the market since the March peak, which also happens to be when the 10-year yield peaked. And if you overlay a chart of reopening stocks relative performance to the 10-year yield, it's the same thing. What that suggests is that the market is more focused on growth as it fears that growth is going to slow. And we're not talking recession here. We're talking about from a very high level, 6% or so GDP <laughs> estimates, down to something a little bit less than that. As growth slows, so do interest rates. As growth picks up, so would interest rates. And the biggest driver, I think, of growth slowing is the fear of restrictions from the Delta variant as we see more and more. I'm in Chicago, and just yesterday they announced that starting Friday, everybody has to wear a mask indoors. More stuff like that will be coming yeah. and coming and coming, and that's the fear. Jim, at Jackson Hole, there'll be a lot of academic papers, and I'm going to pick on the vice chairman of the Fed, Richard Clarida, with his wonderful DSGE uh, that he did with Gertler years ago, I believe 1994. Does any of the theory that we have now apply to the actual debates of Jackson Hole? Does dynamic stochastic general equilibrium theory actually matter in the milieu we're in? You know, the best Federal Reserve officials to listen to are the ones that recently leave. Dan Tarillo was at the Fed during the financial crisis, left in 2017, and gave a speech at Brookings where he said, the Fed has no working theory on inflation. That if you test any theory you want, rational expectations, anchoring, monetary velocity of money, it just doesn't pan out in the statistics that it is a good explanation of what causes inflation. We are all kind of in the dark. And I think Rich Clarida is also in the dark. He's been a big advocate of inflation being well anchored. There's arguments to be made that it's becoming unanchored because you've seen the big rise in the inflation expectations, especially like the University of Michigan survey. And it's going to be very difficult for the Fed because they want to project certainty or they want to project calm that we've got this figured out where inflation is going to go. It's going to be transitory. But the fact of the matter is they don't know. We don't know. Inflation is a very difficult thing to get your head around. And it's a very difficult thing to understand. So it's a big guess. And we'll have to see. And some of those papers, I think, should address that next week. Jim, that's such a great line. We've got to leave it there. Jim Bianco there <laughs> of Bianco Research, the president, because when you leave, Lisa, you get to say what you really think.
Things have changed in the last, oh, I'm going to say one week. We are interested now again in immigration, possibly migration from Afghanistan to various and sundry Western countries, certainly a topic at hand. Before this event, David Rubenstein of the Carlisle Group spoke to someone who has lived this. And of course, it's the David Rubenstein Show. We'll tell you about that here in a moment. Mr. Rubenstein joins us right now. I think, David, of Vartan Gregorian and the Armenian exercise and how Mr. Afian, Mr. Gregorian, and others have stated, we were immigrants, we came here, we were successful, this can work. Tell us about his path to the United States and to great wealth. For those who don't know, he's the chairman of Moderna, and the person who really uh, seeded the company was his idea. Um, it's uh, an incredible story. He's an Armenian refugee from Lebanon. He grew up in Lebanon, but his parents were Armenian or of origin. Went to Canada, got a degree at McGill, came to MIT, got a PhD, and basically started companies. He's now started 76 companies, and many of them have been fabulously successful. He's now running something called Flagship Pioneering, which comes up with new ideas for biotech investing and starts companies, many of which become successful, like Moderna, though that's by far the most successful. How can guys like you compete with guys like him for intellectual excellence? Doesn't he have the upper hand over private equity and other sources of venture capital? Well, there's no doubt that uh, people who are uh, immigrants often tend to be very hardworking and very uh, smart, and, uh, and they are the leaders of many um, <laughs> entrepreneurial ventures. On the other hand, private equity people are investing with him and alongside him and so I wouldn't say it's competitive, but there's no doubt that uh, he is a unique force. He is now running this venture operation, which creates companies like Moderna. And Moderna is a company which has increased in value about 100 times from the initial money that he put in. I think it was $11 million initially put in. It's up 100 times since then. And he has become very wealthy, and he's giving away a lot of his money uh, to various causes, including immigration-related things and helping uh, Armenia. <laughs> but he's very, very interested in biotech. He's also very much at the center of the health catastrophe that has unfolded and will likely be a mainstay going forward as we rely on vaccinations and potentially booster shots to ward off uh, following variations of this uh, virus. There is a question of booster shots. What does he foresee in terms of demand going forward, in terms of the need that we will have for ongoing shots? Well, just as we are getting used to over many years having a flu shot every year, I think his view is we'll be getting a kind of a Moderna or a Pfizer or some equivalent shot for this type of virus every year. And right now, the FDA is probably going to say we need to have a booster shot. I think the Biden administration is now promoting the idea of a booster shot for those people that have had the original Moderna or Pfizer or Johnson Johnson shots. And I think once we have the booster shot, I think you'll be seeing this every year. And I think this company is probably going to be benefiting from it. David, you're on the front lines of this issue, both as the interviewer for these shows that are phenomenal every week, as well as the CEO and chair uh, of uh, Carlisle Group. And I'm wondering whether you've mandated vaccines, how closely you're watching, how this is unfolding on a national level from a corporate and federal level to determine how to create policy going forward for your employees. Well, I think Carlisle has decided uh, that its employees, when they come back to work, should be vaccinated. Um, there obviously are some medical and religious reasons why some might not be able to be, but we think in our offices 
and I think this is true of all the major corporations that I've been talking to lately, they think it's much better for their employees to be vaccinated, and that, that will be Carlisle's policy. David, your thoughts is someone who attends world events. You and I have shared the stage at Davos. Right. There's many other events as well. Your thoughts on Afghanistan and particularly the elite of Afghanistan, the people that have provided innovation there for, let's say, 10 years, maybe 15 years. What is next? It's a sad situation for Afghanistan and a sad situation for our country. The most important thing now is dealing with the humanitarian issues of getting people out who have been helpful to our country. Hopefully, our U.S. government will be able to work out ways that can be done, but it's not going to be pleasant, not going to be easy, it's not going to be quick. So clearly, some mistakes were made, as, as the administration has said. But then before we figure out who, who made what mistakes and how we can correct them in the future, we've got to deal with the present problem of getting people out who are loyal to the United States and the allies in uh, trying to prevent the Taliban from taking over. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. With the Carlisle Group and, of course, host of the David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.